0: Hey, people, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible. And that if we all work together, there is time to create a future that we would be proud to leave to the generations that come after us. This is the premise of this podcast, and I want to repeat it because we all need to hear this and to get to grips with the fact that we are at a moment of ultimate transition or transformation or potential collapse, that we have a choice, all of us, to shift into a new way of being or to be complicit in the destruction of our own species and most of the life on this planet. And I am well aware that the latter option is the narrative being hawked by most of what I still choose to call the predatory capital death cult people who have risen to astonishing levels of power in the system that currently obtains, and who quite clearly do not have the creativity, the internal flexibility, the courage to see beyond business as usual. Our business ecosystems, our media ecosystem, and our political and governance ecosystems are all in hoc to this way of thinking and being, and I do not see that changing in the immediate future. But there are other people, many other people who do have creativity and courage and internal flexibility and who are actively working to bring about the change, to bypass this moment of great destruction and instead to step into what Indy Johar of Dark Marta Labs calls the great peace. Indi is our guest this week. He's an architect by training, but he stepped so far beyond this that it's hard to know where to start in explaining what he is and does. At the most mundane level, he's a senior innovative associate with the Young Foundation. Amongst many other things, he co-founded Impact Hub Birmingham and the Open Systems Lab, was a member of the RSA's Inclusive Growth Commission, and was a good growth advisor to the Mayor of London. But more than all of this, he's an explorer, a maker of happenings. He works deep in the heart of system change and the dark matter of civic infrastructure, of finances, of outcomes, of governance, all the things that shape our current world and that we need to change if we're going to step into a new way of being. With all this at heart, Indy is a co-founder of Dark Matter Laboratories. We did come across them in episode 176 with Emily Harris. But this is a new, deeper dive. So, Dark Matter says on its website, Around the planet, we're feeling the consequences of outdated institutions and inadequate infrastructures incapable of coping with planetary-scale challenges. At Dark Matter, we believe in taking on these challenges via a new civic economy. And their many strands of work include the Radical Civics Experiments, where radical is spelt R-A-D-I-C-L-E, which is the first part of a seedling to emerge from the embryonic seed of any plant. And this arm explores, amongst other things, how we could reimagine houses as autonomous beings, not things that we own. And one of the many, many exciting things about Dark Matter Labs is that they are creating these experiments on the ground. They're making them happen. I have put a link in the show notes to their blog post on repermissioning the city, which goes into this in a lot more detail. And really, if you have time, I encourage you to find that and read it for ideas of things that are actually happening as we speak, changes that are being made in real time and that will have ripple effects beyond the simple reality of their being. Beyond that, Indie and Dark Matter explore so much of what this podcast is about. As we've just said, governance systems, economics and the nature of money, management, and at heart, the nature of the world if we were able to take our place within it as fully conscious beings in a fully conscious web of life. This is what this podcast is about. This answers so many of the questions we have spent the last 200 episodes asking. This conversation took me right to the edge of my thinking, which is such an exciting and enlivening place to experience, to walk, another human being, another mind, the knife edge between what we know, or think we know, and what is coming, and what might yet be possible, and what we could all bring into being, each of us playing our part right at the edge of possibility, letting go of the old paradigms and embracing the new ones. Both Indy and I are under the effect of a virus or two, so there is some coughing, and some rough speaking, particularly from my end. But if you can wear that, I think this is one of those episodes that has the power to change worlds. So, people of the podcast, please do welcome Indy Johar of Dark Matter Labs. Indy, welcome to the Accidental Gods podcast, and thank you for appearing very shortly after you've been to the Labour Party conference, which you're a braver man than me by by a long shot, and in many ways. How are you, and where are you this morning?
1: Uh, good morning. I'm back in London, uh, which is uh, lovely. It's a beautiful day. Um, how am I? Um, I don't know. It feels like a very feels like a moment which is things are turning at a at a rapid rate, and obviously, you know, the news cycle and what we're seeing is pretty serious. And the question is, how do you exist in that? In that reality. So, yeah, it's it's an interesting moment.
0: Yes. And there are so many things in the news cycle. We're obviously recording at a point where there's hot conflict between Israel and Palestine, still hot conflict in Ukraine. And yet, the things that seem to me to be most radical are the things that aren't really getting the mention under the radar, particularly AI, but obviously the climate catastrophe that is. Seems to me to be quite clearly hitting tipping points that people predicted a long time ago, but we're still ignoring them. Given all of that, I have always wanted to ask somebody two questions How long do you think we've got? And what is your theory of change? And I've never dared ask that. But you're Indy Johar, and somebody a while ago said you're the Indian version of Daniel Schmachtenberger. And having spent quite a lot of time this weekend listening to you on YouTube and podcasts, The Daniel Schwarzenberger is an amazing human being, but um, I haven't heard him come up with theories of change that are as expansive and incisive as yours. So let's go for it. How long do you think we've got? What is your theory of change? And where can we take this?
1: Okay. Um, Firstly, I think Daniel's an amazing, 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 amazing gentleman, and I think he's built the pathway to many conversations. So I just want to start there. I I think... um, Maybe what I'll start with is where I situate this conversation from my side. I am, one, I think this is a a one in a 400-year, 500-year transformation. This is not an edge of market, new products, new technology transformation, right? This, I think that there are moments which are what are called technological transformations. This is not an industrial like a new industrial economy. This is actually a shift in fundamental worldviews and how we've constructed our relationship between being human and the world around us, and how we imagine what it means to be human. And what I want to say, why I want to say that is it's it's certainly from my perspective, it's clear that the way we've conceived ourselves as being individuals, where we've conceived ourselves as in objecthood relationships with the world we've made a noun orientated world the way we've used classification theory to divide all objects and separate things out Uh, the way we've used uh, separated knowledge out into its component uh, component parts that worldview which gave us the world we sit around us and also you know that also worldview expanded the theory of property as we as a property being a right um Property, you know, being divided on a theory of objecthood, making something definable and thereby also making something uh, uh, dead or enslaved to the individual and extractable because it's a rights framework. So this is a worldview that I think is coming to an end. That worldview is coming to an end because our externalities are making our entanglements visible, manifestable and non-ignorable. Right, So, our entanglements, I would argue CO2 is, is is a feedbacking of our entanglement. I would argue microtoxins are a feedbacking of our entanglements. I would argue um, our information, global information systems, is part of building that feedback infrastructure. I would argue our sat- planetary satellite systems are building our feedbacking mechanisms. So, what we've entered, and at the same time, since like David Bone, and all the brilliant people that were you know, in the 1970s who were talking about quantum physics and new forms of spirituality, they'd understood that actually quantum physics was opening up a pathway of re-understanding our world outside Newtonian thinking to an entanglement thinking theory. So what we've got is a moment where our entanglements are manifesting, what we've got is science is opening up. I think a different way of seeing ourselves. So the idea of me as an individual—this was a, you know, the, the Vitruvian man drawn by Leonardo da Vinci, which I often cite—is as a Platonic idea of 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 man and humanity, as opposed to an entangled idea of humanity, where we are multitudes. We are not a singular being, but we are entangled in space and time in many formats. So what we've got is a fundamental worldview transition. That's going on, and it is that worldview transformation that I'm particularly interested, in. and and that's why I say that I think this isn't um, this isn't an edge of market. It's not that we're going to tweak the edges of market and those are going to become dominant technologies. This is a worldview shift which transforms all the structures of how we exist, and. And I think, you know, we've been building up to this. This isn't something that's happened. We've been building the infrastructures of entanglement. We've built the, we're reimagining our theories of bureaucracy. And that's why I often talk about the boring revolution and things like this. But this capacity is growing. So I want to situate, that's the theory of kind of what, recognizing our context. Second part is that I would argue that, you know, it's in, in, a theory of change. What this involves is reimagining the world. And I would say several things. One, it, allow, it forces us to reimagine the world from a world of assets and dead things. And our economy is currently a, an economy of resources and dead things to an economy of agents and, um, and inter-becomings. So I want to be precise about that, that we have to reimagine what it means to be human. And in that reimagination, we become inter, not inter-beings, but into because we are a verb process in relationship to other verb processes. Mm-hmm. And we have to reimagine our relationship with the world as everything being an interbecoming. becoming So, and in that agentification of the world, you start to see a kind of a new theory of how we relate to the world. So that's kind of step one. But what we need to do is start to now think what is the theory of change? And I would argue the great theory of change that we're in the middle of is, you know, to give it a buzzword, would be the Great Emancipation. Uh, the Great Emancipation, we sort of expanded our theory of um, enfranchisement through vote, expanding the theory of the vote as a idea of representational agency. But I think this is an enfranchisement of, of everything, machine new, and non-human systems around us. So machines, uh, ecological systems, all becoming perceived as agents, not as resources and assets. And when you sort of agentify the world, you start to move from the idea of ownership, rights, to being in treaty with each other. You start to move into a different theory of being in relationship to, to each other as a theory of care, potentially. You start to expand, and if we operate in complexity, then the theory of care becomes actually really critical as a pathway of, of operating with each other. So what we're seeing is a much larger transformation of our worldview, accepting our entanglements, becoming into becomings, which is, you know, key that we don't see ourselves as individuals, and not just into beings in relationship to each other, but into becomings to be in verbing with in relationship with each other. And this is nuances important here. Because that means that we recognize that we are all in a, in a developmental relationship, as opposed to a pre subscribed relationship. Now, that whole journey is is a two-part journey. One, whether we're seeing it, it rhymes with history, obviously. So with indigenous nation worldviews, which are about rivers being self-sovereign or being agents or the nation of trees. So it rhymes with the worldview. We can now create the institutional frameworks for that worldview, which I think is really interesting. So where we can now start to build that on a planetary scale, which is extraordinary. Um, and we can start to build a new kind of capability to interact that world worldview for uh, not only what I would say are ecological systems or sort of, but machine systems as well. So what that starts to do is, you know, a uh, camera, a car, uh, ca- a house, can they become self-sovereign in a relationship of care? Now, that extension, that starts to create a different theory of human relationships. And humans are no longer in dominion of the world, no longer in control of the world, but in treaty with the world. And that, I think, is a really important part of the transformation to live in entanglements. So, in a way, that is the underlying thesis that we have to move towards to be able to live in entanglements. And, and that requires, obviously human development perspectives all the way through to actually some of the things that that, uh, look as a human development perspective, all sorts of innovation. Now, this lays out the possibility space. Now, the second part is how do we get there? Now, this is where it becomes slightly dark. I think the pathway of getting there is not going to be politicians or any politician, however erudite, standing there and saying, this is the future. I think this is going to be unfortunately driven in part, not totally, but in part by events. Events, dear boy, events to quote, Hmm. and misquote a British politician. And what we're going to see is event-driven crises that will shatter our Overton windows. And those shattering of those Overton windows will create the capacities for the scale of transformation that we're talking about. So I, so my theory of change increasingly is that is not that we're going to see some great leaders emerge who will preventatively smoothly walk us through this. I think we are going to see events. So we will almost certainly see a global financial crash that will drive Uh, radical reinventions both at the center and the outer periphery on currency and currency theory. We will almost certainly see events such as the loss of glaciers, whether it's in the Himalayas or whether it's in the Alps, which will force transnational collaboration on critical common goods in a way that that transcends our theory of governing common goods and common agents. So, what happens in the future where China, India, Pakistan have to collaborate to be able to deal with the Himalayas and their collective governance because 3 billion people's lives are on the line as a result of that? And that starts to talk about a new theory of transnational governance where the Himalayas maybe become self sovereign and are governed in a completely different way. So, what we're, and um, so. I'm, and I've just picked two out. We'll almost certainly see some form of financial crisis as well um, uh, in terms of um, interest rates. I don't think are going to come down. I think interest rates are going to be driven by volatility, uh, volatility in markets, volatility in events and crises in geopolitics around the world, which means that interest rates are going to be persistently high. That is going to drive systemic risks and crises in terms of housing markets, where people are over-leveraged. So how do governments deal with actually radical reform of the housing market if interest rates play 6% and stick at 6%? And at that moment in time, what you start to see is, I think, some radical policy spaces opening up. One, maybe differential interest rates by the central banks, starting to talk about different forms of interest rates for different classes of housing. Of, of, of goods in society negative interest rates for uh, for ecological investments housing maybe being at two, 2 3% interest rates whereas actually consumables might be at 10% interest rates so you start to think of the world differently but also it might mean actually we build a pathway for a new form of what i you know republic housing so how do you take private housing and put it back in the common good space not necessarily of social housing but a new form of new form of micro public housing so work there do. how do you make that as an equitable transition because you don't want people to be made homeless the cost to state and cost to collectively society is much larger so how do you start to move into that reality in a different way and i think that becomes really key
0: okay there are there are so many aspects of this that i would like to unpick but let's take a step back and stay with the overview It is axiomatic in this podcast that we need as human beings to connect to the wider web of life and that when we've done so, we are an inherent part of a complex system in which we have agency, but the agency is directed by our oneness with the web of life. This is essentially shamanic spirituality, but I think it's all spiritualities if we go to their core. What I haven't considered and haven't heard from anybody else is that self agent technology within an entomology of care would also be an integral part of the web of life and that that we may get a little bit too esoteric for people but i would be really interested to know how that feels to you and where you are seeing the leading edges of it and we're in a double exponent now with ai as in for people who haven't followed for too long it's it's getting faster and it's getting faster faster. So it's it's developing its intellect and it's developing it faster than it was. It's no longer doubling time of a year and a half. It's now doubling time of weeks, possibly days. So we're in the singularity. How do you see that joining with human agency within the complex system? So I,
1: I think there's several things. I think for me, seeing technology in the same way as we're seeing it through a shamanistic and a sort of animistic perspective, I think is really key. Because I think what we've created is our technology has been constructed as a mirror of our capital markets. So it becomes, uh, it's currently an extractive system designed so the purpose of technology is for technology to get smarter. The purpose of technology is for it to become the ubiquitous single point actor um, it, it is a representative of driving both monopoly and the attention and the uh, its purpose is, is, is to concentrate both attention and power. And I think that's a function of how we've constructed our theory of capital and thereby replicates our capital investment markets and our theory of capitalism. However, it isn't the only way we can construct technology. And I think this is really important because I think there's two aspects to it. One, I'm more and more a belief that abstract intelligence is quite different from embodied intelligence. And I think embodied intelligence is actually become, going to become more and more critical. Embodied intelligence is highly relational, highly contextual, Highly multi, multi-dimensional, and I think we misunderstand intelligence as being a single-order idea of intelligence. So, and I, I think that that I think embodied intelligence is going to become key theory of intelligence, and that's why I would argue spatial computing is going to become more critical. Which is the network of micro-situational AI capabilities embodied in a different relationship is going to become more the pathway that we need to develop. And in that, we have to build new theories of our relationship with technology, because I think we are going to construct agentful systems. That's going to happen. The question is, how do we construct those agentful systems? How do we construct? So if you can construct a smart surveillance camera network of smart surveillance cameras, do they build, you know, surveillance states or surveillance markets or corporates? Or do we have a different theory of technology, which allows these individual uh, cameras to no longer be surveillance cameras, panopticon systems, but to be cameras, micro cameras of care, where there is no single oversight in the model, but these are relationships to context and embodied intelligence systems. So I think there's a different class of capability on the table. And I think this is why building, let's say, a a similar worldview, which is to say, you know, a river is self-sovereign or a, a, or a camera is self-sovereign or a sensor is self-sovereign, starts to construct a fundamentally different relationship to our world and its, its entanglements and its Asian systems capability. And that's where I would argue is the singularity. The singularity is there. It is not in the singularity of technology, but the singularity of a worldview.
0: How do we step towards that? Because out in the outside world... There are party conferences happening with people who, as far as I can tell, are wholly owned by Capital. And Capital seems to be a death cult on an inexorable drive towards its own destruction and taking us with it. Are you seeing, feeling or hearing people who are understanding what you're saying at a felt level and have the agency to express it in the development of what's happening? So I think in
1: some aspects, yes, right? But I think the reality is these worldviews, this is why I'm more and more convinced that our theories of change are going to be driven by events. They're not going to be driven by leadership. Um, because these are such deep disturbances in the deep code of how we perceive the world, that they, they will be constructed in, in a different moment. And and they'll be constructed to a different pathway. So if we need fundamental land reform, which we do to deal with, you know, moving from agricultural systems as we have them, which are a lot, you know, where the world is a farm, to effectively a worldview where we have to start to think about, you know, a different theory of how we preserve soil, Um, We know technology is starting to make precision farming more possible. We know we're going to have to move towards agroforestry. We know we're going to have to govern soil in a fundamentally different way. So as food system shocks occur, as as climate change shocks occur in terms of water, our theory of governance and our capability to govern in a fundamentally different way is building. So what I'm waiting, you know, I no longer think this can be led. I think it's going to be events which will drive trigger capacities of transformation and they'll happen at both super scale level to micro scale level. So if we have a big housing crisis, then the conversion of housing into a new form of free homes, as we call them in our side, but they become a pathway to deal with the housing crisis, but also fundamentally transform our theory of relationships with things and stewardship. So that's more and more where I'm considering the, f- the, the future emerging. Uh, surveillance cameras going from centralized surveillance systems to cameras uh, which are self-sovereign, micro self-sovereign cameras, which are um, operating as cameras of care because they are they have no panoptic and single-point perspective. Uh, that That is made possible because actually democracy, of the capacity to be able to reorganize those technologies. So we're building some of those proof cases. We're examining some of those proof cases. So I think this is a whole worldview transformation in that sense. Um, and it will happen through a combination of crisis and critical opportunities on the uh, yeah, on, on the slightly oblique side of reality.
0: Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Let's dive a little bit deeper down the rabbit hole of the free houses because you have actual on-the-ground Examples of this. I was particularly struck by the example in Taiwan, of places where this is being tested out. And I'm I'm interested in what is it that's happening in structural and social terms. But I'm particularly interested because it seems to me if this theory of change of events leading is going to happen, and, and not simply the death cult kind of folding in and crushing us all. Then we're going to need people on the ground who understand what you're saying and have the capacity to make it happen. In a tipping point mass. And neither of us, I guess, knows how many people that is, but it's going to be more than you and me and however many people listen to this podcast, or even however many people are engaged with dark matters. So what really interests me, let's go into Taiwan, is how is that impacting the local area? And are people viewing what you're doing and understanding that it is a scalable concept and that that scaling will be good? Does that make sense as a question?
1: No, sure, I, and I think so. We're at the beginning of many of these pathways. So whether it's the free house, uh, which we're exploring in multiple locations, and Fang is driving this, who's leading the Radical Civics portfolio, looking at how do you how do you make a house, how do you reimagine our relationship with with the house? Whether it's the material economy of the house, uh, where you don't own the materials of the house, but you don't you're not in rent seeking with the with the materials. So the big problem that we've had is whenever people have played any of these games, what they've created is vast amounts of rent-seeking systems for basically monopolies of corporations to be able to, in perpetuity, rent-seek from that piece of infrastructure. And what they've moved is the theory of assets from being, assets being distributed in society to assets being concentrated in the hands of corporations. So, so in any of these things, this is a really key question, is how do you move away from building corporate balance sheets and moving balance sheets from citizens to corporates to creating a new uh, self-earning system, which doesn't advance both corporate positions and doesn't mitigate, and whilst creating the capacity to govern. So if your materials, for example, are, you are stewarding the materials at the house, those materials are, are on a on a public chain of of stewardship. So you're constantly you you are in governance relationship with them. The land is self sovereign, but it's not just there for you. But you, you have a stewardship relationship with the birds, the the soil, uh, the other uh, the ecological systems that sit on the land. So it's not about a property right. It's about a property responsibility. So how do you go into responsibility with both the material economy and also the land economy? So this changes our relationship of how we relate to the world. Yes, you have stewardship rights, and they may be in perpetuity. That's absolutely fine. But they are re- they are in perpetuity. They are a responsibility frame. So those are some of the things that we're playing out. And then how do you finance them? You finance this using, uh, say, a different form of instrument that you. You pay, you pay it forward towards, um, uh, yes, you cover the cost of the work for the materials, but you also pay forward for the next free house to be built or is it structured through a perpetual bond in terms of being able to not build some form of equity in the house because you are uh, are effectively uh, just, uh, uh, you're acting as a steward. So what we're building is the instruments, the stewardship agreements, the material economy frameworks. Um, all of these things in, in practical ways. So that's what we're in the middle of. And we're right at the beginning of this stuff. And you can see a lot of this stuff on the Radical Civics uh, blogs and other things that we're exploring.
0: Which I have put the links in the show notes, people. So please do head there. Have you? Can you explain in concrete terms a little tiny bit about what you're doing? It doesn't have to be in Taiwan, but just actually what's happening on the ground. Because it seems to me that this is your creating the new reality in real time and giving people a chance to feel what it feels like.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, there's loads of different examples, whether it's sort of looking at rivers and how do you make, um, you know, how do you make a river, uh, how do you renew a whole river system? And that asks massive questions about how do you even finance it? How do you govern rivers? Uh, Are rivers one thing? So is a river self-sovereign or is a river a network of relationships? how do you build these cascading relationships together? Who gets the benefits? So many of you will heard me speak on uh, talking about the High Line, for example, in New York, which cost 178 million to build, generated 3.48 billion in land value uplift. So these common goods construct vast amounts of shared value. So if you make, if you renew common goods, they construct massive amounts of value. Currently, most of those massive amounts of value has been entirely privatized. And there's a nuanced question that I want to get get into. We often think of common goods as very much like property. We see them as dead, inert, and the distribution problem. But actually, common goods, you know, like a river, maybe it's not, we, the word common goods is not even great. These these commoning agents can be regenerative, they can be ecologically positive, they can be, uh, they can grow in many positive ways. So when you start to look at that from a generative perspective, as opposed to a definitive distribution perspective, you start to reverse the game theory problems that we often see with common goods. And they generate vast amounts of spillover. So what we've seen is the great privatization of, uh, I would say this has been the great second enclosure of common goods, synthetic enclosure of common goods, whether it's Um, you know, you take a house in London, for example, the house in London may be physically will have marginally improved, but actually most of the value of the house in London is being a function of vast improvements in labour markets, vast improvement in schools, vast improvements in uh, public communities. Because if I take that house and put that house in Nova Scotia, that house is worth nothing. So it's not the house, it's your monopolistic access To critical common goods, that's been the inflation of value, and we've misinterpreted where that inflation of value has really come from. We've attributed it to the house, when actually it's an attribution to common goods. So actually, a lot of our work is looking at this idea of common goods and the distribution of value, and how do you construct an economy rooted not in the private house which extracts? but an economy built on rebuilding these commoning agents and refinancing and restructuring these commoning agents not as rent seeking systems so whether it's the tree canopy of a city or a river system of a city or whether it's air quality of a city or whether it's mental health of a city or a region or whether it's actually the material economy of a city these are all forms of commoning agents that are really critical and that's really what we've been building is looking at these types of assets, or I don't like that word, but Mm. it sort of allows it to be conceived, and then look at how do you build both the supply and demand side of those provisions? How do you firstly even build a material registry? So we've been building a uh, material registry, and once you've built a material registry, then you can start to talk about... um, differential uh, differential discount rates for different forms of materials. So uh, end-of-life uh, material which can be fully recycled, uh, can be fully reused, might be different from one which is entirely wasteful. How do you build sinking funds on those materials so that means the end-of-life management can be priced into the system? How does that change your material economy in fundamental terms, in terms of being stewards of that material economy rather than owners, because it creates the institutional frameworks around that in really rich formats. So this stuff requires new institutional logics to unlock these new capabilities all the way through.
0: Are you seeing in the long term that we will still have an e- an economy that is a store exchange and accounting of value? Uh, l- let me take a step back. It seems to me if we're going to give a river or a house autonomy and agency... At some point, we asked the river and the bioregion. I'm really struck always by Joe Brewer's work on bioregionality, its own autonomy. And and then we become an integral part of that. And we know that until relatively recently in human evolutionary history, money was not a thing. Money was an abstract idea that, as far as I'm concerned, is rooted in violence. You, money does not exist until somebody says, I have the capacity to tell you that this token is worth more than anything else that you happen to have, and and you owe me some of it in tax. If if we step away from that function of money and we're stepping towards interagency and the interbecoming that you spoke of, are you seeing money as a step on the way? Or are you seeing that in a globalized world, for want of a better phrase, where we have our communities of place, but we also have communities of purpose and passion? spread in a net around the world, are we still going to need a form of accounting, storing and exchange? And if so, how does it work? I, I noticed that in the um, Seven Cities paper, you had a question of how do we develop an economy that actually allocates sufficiently towards common goods, which presupposes that an economy is a thing that we want. So my question really is, is an economy a step on a way to into becoming? Or is it a thing that we're evolving that will be part of that into becoming?
1: So I think it's a good question. I can't see quite far enough. What I can see certainly is a series of moves. One, resituating our economy from the private to the commoning infrastructure. Two, I would say decentralizing and distributing the production of money to those commoning agents. So massive decentralization of the production of money to those agents. So the the river being a, having its own, you know, river being a bank. Right. And step two, the river itself being its own bank in some some way. And then step three, I think beyond that, is very hazy for me. Um, And I think there's going to be whole sorts of, Uh, Pathways to that. So, for example, we're almost certainly, so just root this back a little bit, is that we're going to see some form of major global financial crash. In that global crash, we will see the shift in power to central bank digital currencies, probably four or five of them in the world maximum. At the same time, what we'll see is a shift towards on the fringe economies, stuff like Bitcoin. And in the middle, we're going to see a move towards resource and commoning-backed currencies. And so, you know, we'll move from the gold-backed currencies to aluminium-backed currencies to copper-backed currencies as as the province infrastructure, and that will then move us towards commoning-backed currencies. So we're going to see, and this will be driven through a moment of shock, and in that shock, they will create these waves of transformation. And I would say that's where now... I do agree with you, you know, money itself is a claim on the future and many formats, the way we create money through debt and other things. There's a m- more fundamental questions, but I, I'll be honest with you, I can't see, I can see those two steps. I can see that far. Beyond that, I think there's a whole type of entanglement that occurs and transitions that I think will be richer than anything I can see right now.
0: Okay. Yeah, we're talking about the edge of emergence into a new system. And if we could see it, it wouldn't be a new system. We spoke last week with Monty Merlin, who's one of the co-founders of ReFiDAO, which is regenerative finance, who was talking about expanding the definition of capital. He wants to grow the donut. And and I had a certain pushback on how, because the upper limit is planetary boundaries and the lower limit is human rights. And he, his theory is he has eight types of capital. We change the nature of capital and then we can grow intellectual capital, spiritual capital, mental health capital, soil capital. We don't have to be growing actual material profit capital. And it seemed to me that that, the leading edge of the young people, mostly men, mostly white, but not exclusively, who have grown up in a world where blockchain cryptocurrencies were their founding reality, that that could be an edge where currency might be created that that isn't debt-based, that isn't fundamentally predicated in some form of violence and, and which becomes a mode of sharing. Are you working in, I think Bitcoin, uh, I would say Bitcoin is a catastrophe because it was based on a lot of very dodgy premises, but some of the new coins are, are seem to be endeavoring to be regenerative. Is that an area you're exploring and where do you, where does that feel to you?
1: So um So I do agree that the planetary boundaries and the social boundaries are, they define the primitives of the system, not the scope of the system. The scope of the system is, I would argue, growing the infinite collective intelligence and capabilities of humans, or the infinite capacity of care, or the infinite uh, capacity of complex cognition, creativity, whatever. That is the right. So if the donor is like a disk, that is the z-axis on the disk. Right, yeah. And that that is an infinite human capacity capability question, potentially. Um, I also, if I'm being a little bit challenging, I would say that what are deemed planetary boundaries at this moment in time may not be the planetary boundaries in the next 40 years. So we unlock fusion capacity, in the next 40 years, our theory of energy. Thorium. Yeah.
0: Molten salt thorium. Yep.
1: Our our theory of our energy to GDP function fundamentally transforms itself. Um, Our capacity for interplanetary mining almost certainly will happen if we don't destroy ourselves in certain capacities. So I just want to keep in mind that actually we, everyone thinks about these things as those single truths and I think they're momentary truths which have an evolutionary path to them. So I think the next 40 years, we are almost certainly going to be living in some form of systemic constraints, which I think is going to be maybe even healthy for our growth. Those material constraints will allow us to build the cognitive civilizational capacities to deal with new theories of abundance as we unlock them. And I think this might be actually the great you know, uh, Fermi paradox that you have to be able to go through this constraint landscape and not terminate yourself to build the capability to live at near near infinite abundance of whether it's energy or material access, because you've unlocked a kind of class of value at a solar system level that you would never been able to do with. So I, I, this is where I think it's, I just want to I'm slightly nuanced about this because I think there's people that define it one way and say, well, this is what we've got to live in this boundary. And I think, yes, but it's not infinite. It is not necessarily the only path for all of civilization forever.
0: That feels really exciting. So can we dig into this more deeply? Because I don't fully understand. My concept of the boundaries at the moment is that most of them are a result of extraction, consumption, destruction and pollution. And that CO2 is the one that everybody pays attention to, but actually nitrates and phosphates are destroying the oceans faster than almost anything else. And microplastics and forever chemicals that you know arose because we decided it was a fun idea to create cortex and didn't think what it was going to do. And the complexity of that and the lack of our understanding of complex systems and the interrelationships between, let's say, forever chemicals, microplastics and excess nitrogen in the ocean. We have no idea what these may be. The, the planetary boundaries that the Stockholm Institute have created are, are really big and clunky. And every species that we know of that goes through a growth phase that we have, that basically outgrows its power source does end up polluting itself out of its ecosystem. And changing the power source, I'm going to be talking to somebody from the thorium network in a couple of weeks time. And it does seem as if thorium molten salts could really power almost as much as fossil fuels, if not more, provided we can maintain an infrastructure or create an infrastructure with the fossil fuels that we can afford to burn now to create the infrastructure that would allow thorium to power us. And I I in very much in two minds about whether I even want to put this out in a podcast, because it seems to me that telling everybody they can carry on with business as usual, don't worry, it's okay, no more CO2, the fossil fuels are going in, we're going to have something else, is an extremely bad idea. Because we won't then get the events that you're talking about, the kind of Anthony Eden events, dear boy events, they won't happen. Because the guys who hold the capital, the death cult, will just draw that in and maintain quite a rigid, hierarchy that they're very comfortable with, that keeps them at the top and everybody else at the bottom. And I don't want to create dystopian futures. I desperately want the one that you're talking about, where the interbecoming becoming is a thing, but creating a good power source doesn't feel to me like the best way to get there. How are you seeing the interbecoming becoming that you're talking about arising out of, let's say, the, the malleability of planetary boundaries?
1: So so there's two things. Um, time. So the replacement of the energy systems that we have to do and the speed of our capacity to be able to get to thorium or any of these other capabilities, there's a time gap. Uh, there's a time gap even in electrification of our current cities. Uh, so even actually building the electrical uh, sort of copper uh, electrification capabilities of our cities and our modal systems. So. So this is why I think time is really important. We often forget the dimension of separability in time. And that's why I think the constraint systems are manifest. Secondly, as you rightly point out, the planetary boundaries are not just driven by CO2 and hydrocarbons. It's driven by a whole set of our systemic, um, sort of our farming functions, our, our all sorts of our secondary functions. And the reality is we're, Unless we do much deeper and climate change, CO2, climate sort of uh, destruction is effectively just a symptom of the transformation of the change that we're facing. It's a symptom. It's not the root cause the root cause is much more structural. So we are gonna to have to change our you know, our economy to being a biomaterial economy. We are gonna to have to shift from a material economy uh, sort of growth focus to an intangibles economy for growth focus, which is effectively looking at all the multi-capital stuff that you're talking about. Um, so those things are precursors to be able to make a viable transformation. So for me, this is, yes, I think in the 40 year cycle, we get to new sources of energy, But that doesn't solve our problem. We still have to reform our food systems to be able to actually solve our problem. We have to still move towards a biomaterial economy to be able to solve effectively huge parts of our ecological risks that we're holding in different formats. So the transformation is structural. I think what we know is that we can actually start to plug and transfer this capability over time, which I think is really useful. But I don't think certainly that the time dimension can be ignored. Um, and the other part that I think I'd put in here is that for the death cult of capitalists, I think what I'm seeing is there is no viable New Zealand strategy for the, for the capitalists. I'm going to use, I, I hate the term capitalist, but let's say for the super wealthy, there is no- We could
0: just call them the death cult. It works for me.
1: <laughs> uh, but say, let's say for the, there is no soup, there is no pathway for a viable New Zealand strategy for the super wealthy. Because you can isolate yourself in New Zealand and you don't have paracetamol. You don't have vaccines. You don't have microchips. You don't have PPPEs, right? So sure, if you want to go and live no more than 40 years of your life, because that's maximum 45 years without any of those capabilities, um, there's no pathway. We are so planetarily entangled in terms of being able to make a transition. But I think that one, one of the things that's becoming clear, even to the the super wealthy, is the entanglement means that we live in a fork of mutually assured thriving or mutually assured destruction. And this is a fork landscape, not a spectrum. And this is why I don't buy all these people that say, oh, the Earth's carrying capacity is a billion. We're going to have to bring us down to a billion because I think the trauma of losing 7 billion people in the planet and a capability of weapons of mass destruction and the capability of weapons of mass information pollution will mean we will effectively end up self-terminating ourselves totally. And the sooner the wealthy and the people in power get this, really simply... That there is no viable New Zealand strategy. There is no viable one part survives and another part dies. We are living in the option of mutually assured thriving or mutually assured destruction. And once we, that becomes very clear, and I think it, you know, all the facts point that way, I think then it becomes the really simple question is life wants to live, let's Mm. use Jurassic Park and life wants to live. Then we have a path, mutually assured thriving. The, the pathway to a great peace is the only way that we we make it, and the great peace is a great peace in space and in time. Recognising the violence that we're doing in space and in time, and as soon as we construct that, we have a pathway to mutually assured thriving. And in that pathway, that is the great pivot moment in our transition. If we can do that, we, we're going to be we're going to be an extraordinary place. Like this is where you get into the worlds of. You know, James Lovelock and Nova scene where the planet becomes conscious of its whole self. And I think we open up a pathway of civilization that none of us can imagine. And all of that is plausible right now. I sit with quite a lot of hope, actually, in this moment, because I think there isn't much choice in our worldview. There is literally one path open to us. And I think what we have to do is get rid of the illusion of the other paths to say this is the path and there is no other path.
0: And what you've said previously is this is not going to be top down it's going to arise from the grassroots. Because I I end up in a recursive internal loop, which says that there's the old statement in science that says science evolves one funeral at a time, because you've got to get rid of the old guys at the top whose fossilized clinging to their own worldview has, has stopped everything happening. And when you have something, somebody else comes up with a new fossilized worldview, but at least it's slightly different. And it seems to me that across the world, we've got the Netanyahus and the Putins and whoever is currently leader of the Tory party and potentially Trump in the States and Modi and all of the others. We have an awful lot of old men who are emotionally illiterate, who had presumably highly traumatized childhoods and who are enacting their inadequacies. On a world stage, they're they're toddlers who've been given weapons of mass destruction. Are you seeing at any level within this because you, you you've you just been to the Labour Party conference, you you hold conversations with people at really high levels. And that if the events are going to help the grassroots to evolve in the way that we need it, it would be really nice if the toddlers at the top didn't press the big red button first, just in a, in a you know, fit of peak, because they see themselves losing power. Are you seeing shifts happening at the level that would bring wisdom to those with power and power to those with wisdom? within this Fermi's paradox of the, the kind of waste bit in the middle of, of the egg timer that we need to get through?
1: Um, I mean, I'm not sure that our politicians and our political systems, our political systems are captured into very small Overton windows. And those Overton windows are captured by relatively small minorities, which are increasingly living in theories of fear. And as the violence accelerates in the world, that fear as a means of orchestration will become the political dominant theory of orchestration. And this is why I use that word of a great peace, because I think what we have to recognize is we're going to be living, and we are living, not going to be living, we're living in a great war. It's a non-material war and some places kinetic and some places non-kinetic war that we are terminating life both into the future and into the present. And I think we have to start to situate and I think people can viscerally feel the violence in their world. View, world. And I think we have to situate this as a great transformation and a great transition to a great peace as a necessity to this pathway. So I, uh, whether I think that I am hoping that nobody pushes the red button. I uh, just out of recognition of mutually assured destruction pathways, but there is inevitably a risk that this will be one way we will not make it. One way we will not make it is somebody will push that red button because they will feel so violated. Um, but I think, um, yeah, if if that doesn't happen, then I think we are we have the capacity. But it's going to require us to reimagine our humanity. It's going to require new language and political. Law. Reinvent words like, that's why I said, you know when I talk about the great peace, we need to approach a great peace, that forces us to recognize the violence of every day. When I talk about the freedom, but the freedom to be human, not just the freedom to consume, or the freedom of choice but actually a deeper form of freedom, which is the freedom to be radically human and radically and into becoming. What does that freedom look like? And, and I think we have to go. What does it feel? Like what does it look like and feel like? Exactly. And how do you create the constituents of words, which, you know, freedom is a sort of spell word in my view. It's a word which has power of an order of magnitude than the letters. And And we need to re-embrace that word of freedom. And too often we talk about solidarity, but actually what we need to talk about is the freedom to be human, not as a freedom as a theory of choice, as a theory of consumption. And we have to re-embrace these spell words that are so foundational to our way of thinking and evoke a capacity of being radically greater than we are. And the other part that I would say is that it's also really important to recognize that the conversation that we're having is an invitation to greatness. It's not an invitation to scare. It's an invitation to greatness because I think it will require our generation. And this is not a handover to kids because we don't have the time. It will be our generation that is going to be responsible and invited to greatness. And I think that is the invitation and an invitation to overcome our own personal fears, an invitation to operate not through fear, but through actually a freedom to be human, to build the developmental capacity, to address our own traumas, to be able to actually build that capacity, recognize that our theory of capital, punishment, control, all these things are, are logics of the age of kings, right? So, So control theory, which has been move from kingship to militaries, to militaries, to management. These are a pathway of organizing the world through control and punishment mechanisms. Yet actually life-affirming structures or actually uh, frameworks which are effectively built not on theories of control and punishment, but actually on the developmental capacity of being human are fundamentally a radical emancipation. The accidental, not even the accidental, the intentional gods um but gods of care that we can become and not only just humans but non-human and and uh and ecological systems how do we live in that super radical pantheon in that future so that is an invitation to greatness and it's at the const at the constellation of this stuff i think there is a, there is a capacity and a necessity not just a capacity and a necessity for this move
0: that is Really beautiful. I love the idea of this radical pantheon. And I had never expanded my own thinking of the more than human world to include technology. For me, it was all that was here before the people were here. But but then we've created the technology. It is a part of whatever we are becoming. So this is taking us right to the edge of where my thinking is going. And it feels immensely exciting. And actually, I would like to start a whole new podcast, but in default of that, because we're both not feeling great and we have to go. I have just completed a novel that took us to the edge. It took us the day after a general election in the UK. And our main protagonists, this is a spoiler, shut your ears if you want to read the novel, is, are going to, some of them, going to start a new governance structure. So this is absolutely me, totally, harvesting ideas for the next novel. I will mention you in the acknowledgements, I promise. Have you got a vision of a governance structure that would work. Our our existing governance structures clearly are broken. I can see no route at all to fixing what we've got. Let's assume that that goes. Let's assume also, I would say, that we have governance by consent, still, just. And if we, the people, could create a governance structure that functioned and could be demonstrated to function better than the existing dysfunctional ones, that would gain the consent. Let's take those both as a given. Have you a felt sense of what such a governance structure might look like?
1: Okay, so let's, this is a great question. So it's a great question because I've, I've never been asked it and um, it forces me to crystallize some stuff. So I appreciate the question greatly. Okay, let's, I think there's layers to this question. I think at the root of this question is recognizing the world through a series of developmental interbecoming agents. And this is really important, humans and non-humans. So the theory of governance is not to instruct to control, but it's recognizing these are interbecoming becoming agent, agents in, and interbecoming because they are always contextually rich and appropriate. So that that and if you imagine that is the world and that's human and non-human and uh, machine and non, non-machine systems, That is the worldview that we've we've optimized. Then what happens is that what you are governing is the learning capacity of those into becomings. What you're governing is not the you're not instructing yes or no. You're governing is the quality of learning capacity. It's like a school. It's a nurturing capacity of a system. So it's like how we govern in really good schools. What you're not telling students to do is left or right do what you're creating is the nurturing conditions for those becomings to be rich self-aware systems and it's the quality of that that becomes really key and so in that modality what you start to do is you shift your theory of parliament to not being focused on instruct instructions and policies which are definitive but actually policies which are about actually advancing and accelerating the learning capacity of the systems and actually the agentification of the system. So the more we can expand the agentification of the system and the more advanced we can build the learning capacity and the protocols of learning capacity, so the quality of feedback, so your, your governance is a function of actually your sensing and your richness, your embodied intelligence, and growing that capacity is what Parliament becomes. So it becomes less about control, but more about the developmental capacity of society. And in both in space and time, right? So I think one of the other things that we would also need is recognizing our relationship in space and time in a much more fundamental way. So what does the House of Lords become when it becomes a house of the hundred years, which is that the representatives there are looking after the interests of the next hundred years, As opposed to looking after the interests of the present system so what's our relationship between time becomes a really key component so for me the governance system of the future is focused on those two paradigms and as opposed to a control and resource paradigm and a linear projection paradigm this builds a sort of a different theory now i think there's once you get into this modality, there's a third horizon, but very much like like we said about currency. I think that is the emergent complexity that I don't think you can perceive any further.
0: But we don't have to because the system would be learning and would take us there. And if we could see it, it wouldn't be an emergent horizon. That's, that's extraordinary.
1: Exactly.
0: Indy, that's given me so many ideas. Go on.
1: And I, and I intentionally try to not see past certain points. Because I think if you try to, what you do is you force linearities into the model, which actually define it and define it badly. Yeah. So there's a sort of intentional saying of like, this is as far as we can see, and this is as far as we need to see. Beyond that, there's a whole new class of complexity that emerges to which we neither will we will not see that, and that shouldn't be seen. And this is why I sometimes sort of find it problematic in conversations with people that what do you see in the future what's your vision of the future because they limit our capacities yeah. of making the future so what are the developmental capacities becomes really key so that's why i really appreciate this question so there are two big philosophical leaps in this one the agentification of the world so three interbecomings um agentification of the world third is effectively a learning oriented uh, so governance being driven through learning and coherence, through learning capacities and the protocols of learning, as opposed to control. And those, those three dimensions, I think, drive everything.
0: Yeah. And then, this is the first time I've really understood Donella Meadows' 12 levers of change, because I always got stuck at the change the paradigm. But the top one is abandon all paradigms, and that's exactly what you're doing. You're holding a frame within which all our existing paradigms can be abandoned and not trying to predict from our existing paradigms where that will take us. Okay, my brain is full. I have an infinite number of other questions, but actually I'm not sure that I could express them in a way that would be coherent. And I also think we need to give the listeners a chance to digest everything that they've had. Indeed, this has been so exciting and inspiring, and I am enormously grateful that your astonishing capacity for heart and generosity of spirit and intellect exists in the world and that you came onto the podcast. Thank you so much.
1: Honestly, it's such a pleasure to be here and thank you for doing what you're doing. Thank you for creating the spaces for these conversations because I think this is a moment where, you know, as Polini rightly said, this is a moment of philosopher makers. <laughs> I think unless you can philosophize the future, you can't make it. Unless you can make it, you can't philosophize it. And I think this is that, this is that craft moment. And I, I love the fact you're holding these spaces, because I think it's really important we break the paradigm of just do it. And we break the paradigm of we just do it to be able to do those two things together. So I really appreciate the spaces that you're holding. And I appreciate all the listeners for being here as part of these conversations, because I think collectively, this is part, part of a much bigger conversation, which I'm deeply appreciative of.
0: Thank you. Yes, me too. So we can dit just do it for just be it and then see where that takes us. Thank you so much. And that is it for this week. I am still in awe, frankly, of the depth and breadth and power and paradigm-shifting extent of Indy's thinking. This is what we need. This is a theory of change that feels to me as if it works. And we are right on the edge. I know I said it in the intro, and we have said it several times through, We are, what India has called elsewhere, the interstitial generation, the one that comes between the paradigms. There is nobody else. And it is a cliché to say, if not us who, and if not now when. But it is us, and it is now. The narrative of business as usual is gaslighting. And it's gaslighting of the worst kind, because every time we think that tomorrow is going to be an iteration of yesterday, we lose another moment in which we could be affecting change. So really, if you're listening to this podcast, it's because you get it and because you care. And I would ask you what I asked Indy at the top of the show. How long do you think we've got? And what is your theory of change? It might not be ours, but it might borrow from something that Indy or I have said or the concatenation of the two of us together. I have put a whole bunch of links in the show notes so that you can follow up all of the ideas that Indy and the group at Dark Matter are working with. This is the leading edge of change. If we can embrace the paradigms that are being explored here and let go of the old one, then the great peace is still possible. And as we said last week with Rowan Ryrie, if you want ideas of how to hold the conversations that matter, we are heading towards that And as soon as their pilot project is done and expands to the wider world, I guarantee that I will let you know. In the meantime, this is going out on the 25th of October. And on the 29th, we are holding Dreaming Your Death Awake, which is, oddly enough, well within the paradigm of moving towards the great peace. I don't think we can learn fully to live until we have learned to embrace our own death. I don't think we can find that sweet spot between our heart's greatest joy and the world's greatest need until we have learned fully to embrace our own death. And if the great peace is about anything, it's about us learning to stand on the knife edge of that moment where our heart's greatest joy meets the greatest need of all of the web of life. Which is, oddly enough, what Accidental Gods is all about. So if you want to come and join us, you don't need any previous experience, we will make it as open and inclusive as we know how. And with all that said, we will be back next week with another conversation. In the meantime, thanks to Caro C for the music at the head and foot, to Caro and to Alan Lolls the very tight studio for the production, to Anne Thomas for the transcripts, to Faith Tilleray for all of the website, for keeping up with YouTube and Instagram in spite of having the virus and feeling pretty crap. And, as always, for the conversations that keep us moving forward. And finally, as ever, an enormous thanks to you for being there, for caring, for listening, for sharing. And if you know anybody else who wants to understand the gravity of this moment and the potential for the paradigm shift that we could bring about, then please do send them this link. And that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you and goodbye.